Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. All right, today we've got the story of Lance Corporal Kyle Carpenter. Lance Corporal Carpenter is a United States Marine that was serving with Fox Company 2nd Battalion, part of the 9th Marines, in Helmand Province, Afghanistan in 2010, during the war in Afghanistan. And we're going to talk today, it's, it's a little bit different, an, an avenue we haven't really gone down, where we're going to be able to talk not just about his actions for which he would be awarded the Medal of Honor, but we also get to talk about what he's doing today, which is awesome. Because so many of these stories we cover and we dive into detail on, they end with a service member losing their life. And there's always things we can learn from it and takeaways. And there are, in many cases, other people that lived because of the actions that were taken. What's awesome here is not only does Kyle Carpenter survive and be able to tell his story, but he's continuing to make what I think is just an incredible impact. So let's dive on in. Carpenter is stationed in Helmand province. That's west of Kandahar, kind of in this Southwest portion of Afghanistan. Helmand has tradition or for a while now been loosely, I don't know, I guess formally under the control of the United States Marines. So in terms of the U.S. effort in Afghanistan, there came a point where the U.S. said it's going to make a lot more sense if the Marines have one area of operation as opposed to bouncing around all over the country. Helmand province ended up being that area. Now, prior to the Marines, the British were heavily involved in in Helmand. And it's just been a nasty area. There's been a lot of fighting out there. A lot of casualties come from Helmand province on both sides. Within Helmand, you have an area, a district called Marja. It's a city. It's a district. It's a population hub is another way to describe it. I mean, it really, when you get outside the major cities in Afghanistan, you're, you're looking at a very rural environment. So, it's a loose collection of homes, of small communities, and, and it's, it's rather expansive. So it's not as though you're going to have high rises in a city and it kind of goes out from there. It's going to be a low, sprawling, rural environment. That's Marja. It's the district of Marja. The number of people in Marja, is, it, it varies. It's hard to nail down, but it's not crazy to throw it around 100,000. Again, we're talking loose numbers of a pretty big area. What's going to happen in 2010 is something something named Operation Mushtarik. Mushtarik, I think I'm probably mispronouncing that. It's a Dari word for together or joint. So the idea is that we're starting to change some strategies in Afghanistan at this point. Iraq is starting to become a little more manageable from a U.S. perspective, and we're seeing resources shift into Afghanistan. This is also, if you recall, President Obama's focus during his campaigns and then during his presidency was was more focused on the war, kind of making progress and hopefully wrapping up the war in Afghanistan. So resources started to become available. The decision was made to start focusing on a few different things. There was a, a strategy shift, if you will, where we were going to do more of a flooding of Afghanistan with troops. We're going to first start to see this in Helmand province in Marja during this operation. 
it's easy to make the comparison between what happens in Marja, the Battle of Marja, as it's known, and the Second Battle of Fallujah. The Marines made it easy to make that comparison because they took part in both. They were responsible for the bulk of the planning in both. Um, both battles live on today in Marine Corps history. But there were other little things that that played out as well. The Marines in both situations kind of alerted the population that, hey, we're coming in here. And in both in both operations, they went in with the idea of setting up a number of permanent or semi-permanent patrol bases where they would operate out of. So that's going to be a major part in Operation Mashtarik in Marja in 2010. The second big part and, and why Marja, we're not going to go as far down the rabbit hole here, is if you look on a map, it's like, man, this is out in the middle of nowhere. What's the U.S. doing all the way out there? Well, another little bit of a shift in our strategy at the time was to focus a little bit more on, you know, a step or two behind the warfighter, the Taliban warfighter, that is. And look at maybe their source of funding. So there's within Hellman, within Marja specifically, it's it's right in the middle of you know a band of poppy production. It makes up a substantial amount of revenue for Afghanistan for the farmers, and it it, it produces like a staggering amount on the world stage from some of these really little areas. So the farmers, that's how they make their money. But in turn, it, it's illegal. This isn't something that's legal in Afghanistan. It's just not. Um, there's not been a great system to enforce, um, to enforce, to enforce it. So think of it like a black market product. It's just as black market there as it is around the world. It's much easier for an organization like the Taliban to tax and have, uh, protection rackets around illegal products than legal. So in turn, the poppy production, it's not as though you have Taliban fighters out there in the field harvesting and then transporting and, and selling, uh, the poppy and the opium, um, but you do have them involved just because it's a black market product. So there's a lot of funds flowing to the Taliban because of this production. It's a heavy product in Marja. The U.S. is going to go in there and try to change a little bit how, well, the U.S. and Afghans, there's 15,000 going in and there's going to be a substantial, I want to say five Afghan brigades are going to participate in this operation. So a big part of it is going to be with Afghans working together to hopefully shift things in Marja a little bit. And if we can maybe focus a little bit more on other crops, if we can make that work, or at least starting to work with the government instead of with the Taliban shadow government, it's going to be a step in the right direction and start to whittle away at maybe the Taliban's financial support. So nonetheless, the operation kicks off in February of 2010. We would consider it wrapped up, I guess, the... You know, the history books are going to say it wrapped up in December of 2010, so about 10 months. But just like every battle that we look at in Iraq and Afghanistan, you can you can shift those dates. It's hard to shift the start date. You can shift that end date however you want. Um, and I don't know many people that would say that Marja, Afghanistan was was in a good place and pacified and ready to go on 7 December 2010. The fighting continued and continue. And the fighting continues. It hasn't stopped. So as Carpenter and his unit are, they're part of the, the surge forces. They're going to start adding to the Marines in Helmand province. So that's one of the reasons for the timing of the operation. Now, as they move in, one of the things they're going to do is, as I mentioned, setting up these patrol bases. The idea is to be closer to the population, be among those that are out there and help to influence 
help to influence the population is the best way to say it. So the, the intent of any of these operations, since you know, after, once you get past the initial conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan, which is, you know, very kinetic, the idea has almost exclusively been to win the war of the people, get the people on your side. It's hard to do that if you're not on the ground with them and don't see them often, especially in an area like Marja, where the Taliban forces or enemy forces, however you want to describe them, are going to be homegrown. Remember, this is in the South. The Taliban is a heavily Pashtun movement. They recruit heavily from the Pashtun tribe. And you're going to have a lot of, these aren't necessarily foreigners coming in from Pakistan, like you would see up in the East. These are going to be people that grew up in Marja. They just associate more or, or um, respect or prefer, or however you want to say it, the Taliban over certainly over the United States, but even over the Afghan national police or the local police or the military. That is the dynamic that is trying to be changed in Marja. And one of the ways we're going to do it is to be amongst the people. We've talked about this before where you don't know if the people truly want you there or not, but you have no chance of knowing that if you never interact with them. So we're going to set up patrol bases. We're going to get in the middle of the city. We're going to fan out across the city. It should make it harder for the Taliban to move around and do their business. If nothing else, it's a little bit harder. But also, hopefully, we have an opportunity to help engage with the local population. But there's a challenge. Remember, this is a homegrown Taliban threat. These aren't folks coming in from around the world that show up the same time you do to a battlefield, like you would see in conflicts throughout time. Think of World War II. When U.S. and German forces would meet at some point in France, it might be the first time that both of them are in that field. Or there, there certainly wasn't much lead time. E- even a situation where the Germans set up a defense, they've only been there for a year, maybe a few months. In areas like Marja and throughout Afghanistan, especially in the south, the United States and Afghan forces from other parts of the country, that's important, are going to go into combat with Taliban forces in their home territory. I mean, within their homes, within their villages. So while you might have Afghan military, Afghan police with you, there's there hasn't been a set strategy. It's been all over the place. But often you would have Afghans from other parts of the country attached. So it was not uncommon in the Marja operation to have Afghans that, that didn't speak Pashto, only spoke Dari, and were from... North, East, Central, West, Afghanistan would come down and work in this, I mean, borderline foreign part of their country. So they might be from within the same country. That doesn't mean they know the neighborhood like the person who's grown up there, right? So the patrol bases are going to be the United States and the Afghans taking over homes or abandoned homes that they move into or buildings or whatever you might whatever might be most advantageous at the time. A lot of times, ideally, it's already abandoned and there's not a situation of having to ask somebody to leave. Um, that's not uncommon during a lot of these battles. There's There's been a lot of displacement of civilians. But the challenge you run into is the enemy knows the back alleys. The enemy knows how to get to that house. The enemy knows, I mean, think about it. If somebody sets up shop in your neighborhood, an enemy that you're trying to fight, sets up shop across the street, you know how to get to that house. You know, maybe the fields of vision, you you know, maybe you used to play in the woods behind that house. I mean, think of the advantage you would have over the person that steps foot in there for the first time and says, I'm going to defend this. That's the situation that Carpenter and his Marines found themselves in. Um, 
found themselves in in Marja, specifically on the morning or in the day of 21 November 2010. They take over an area and they call it Patrol Base Dakota. Now, it's it's just a building, so you've got to figure out ways to defend it. And one of the ways is you put people up on the roof. So Lance Corporal Carpenter and another Marine are up on the roof providing security on the 21st. That day, a battle kicks off. Middle of the day, again, hotly, hotly contested area. Battle kicks off. There's small arms fire, RPGs, and bam, like that, grenade comes over the roof. Comes up the side. Again, remember, people know how to get in around this, this building. So you're fighting a local Taliban. It's not, don't think of this as somebody snuck up from a half mile away and crawled and ducked and maneuvered. Like it might've been somebody that was sleeping 30 feet away in their bed and woke up and said, I think I'm going to attack those people right there. It's that sort of fight. Nonetheless, grenade comes over the side of the roof, lands between stops rolling between Lance Corporal Carpenter and another Marine And without hesitation, Kyle Carpenter lunged towards that grenade to shield the fellow Marine from the blast. As he's doing so, the grenade goes off and he absorbs nearly the full brunt of the explosion. Saves the life of his fellow Marine, but would severely wound Carpenter from head to toe. I mean, one of the comments I saw was was just that. It said he was wounded across his entire body. His helmet had holes punched in it. His Kevlar vest was ripped off. Some of his gear was melted. He'd be medevaced from the battlefield and would spend five weeks in a coma. But he survived. He's alive. After that five weeks, it will not after that five weeks, during, in that window, after the event on the 21st of November, He would spend two and a half years recovering. That would include 40 plus or minus 40 surgeries to do things like repair collapsed lung. He, he needed to uh, have a prosthetic eye. He had an arm broken with nearly 30 places that needed to be fixed. I mean, a, a, a staggering amount of wounds sustained and just think of the mental fortitude needed to come in and out of surgery in and out in and out, in and out, two and a half years, not just repairing his body, but learning how to use his body again. So it's not as simple as just somebody took a bullet and now you've got a, you know, your arm hurts a little bit more. His entire body has been altered because of that action on the 21st November. But, and this is where I think this turns out so cool. He, he's awarded the medal of honor for, that selfless act of using his body to shield his brother from the grenade blast. So he's recommended, he's awarded the Medal of Honor. He gets out of the hospital and quickly gets after it. Since leaving the hospital after two and a half years in recovery, two and a half years of recovery, he entered the hospital at, let's see, he was age 20 at the time of the event. So young man, young, young man. When he left the hospital, quickly got after running marathons, jumping out of airplanes, backpacking across Europe, finished college. I mean, just he talks about how he, he just started coming up with lists of things that he was going to do and just get after it, not let this stuff hold him back. And that is what I think is so awesome about the story of Lance Corporal Kyle Carpenter. 
So many times we have these stories and we have to extrapolate what happened. And how can we learn the lesson from what that soldier, Marine, or airman did? And it's great. It's such an incredible learning tool. But we are so, so fortunate that we have somebody of the caliber of Kyle Carpenter who survived and is now at home telling his story for the greater good. Now, I, I love this this part too. He, when he tells his story, he's written a book. And he he has organizations he's working with, and he's he's out there trying to do good. There's there's a hundred ways you can do this. When you are a hero, as Kyle Carpenter is, there's a million ways that you can work with that, and none of them are wrong. Whatever you want to do, you can do nothing. You've done your part. That's acceptable. You can sign brand deals. You can do speaking tours. You can, you can, whatever. It doesn't matter. There's no right or wrong. That person has, in my opinion, at least has earned the right to do what they want to do now that they're home and that they were fortunate enough to survive. Kyle Carpenter has chosen to give back and to try to make the world a better place. What he's done, and one of his comments, the one that I like the most, is that he said he's just an ordinary man that found himself in an extraordinary situation. How humble is that? How fortunate are we that we have somebody like that that we can not just read about and learn about, but can engage with and continue to learn from? He's sharing that experience, that knowledge, and talks about how powerful it is for somebody to do one little selfless act. And that we should think more and more about just giving back a little bit. It doesn't have to be something big, just something a little bit. But what he spends the bulk of his time doing today is focused on the thought of helping others to see what is exceptional within themselves. You know, the idea that everybody is special. Everybody is powerful. It just takes a little bit of work to figure out what that is on an individual level. And if more and more people do that, how great of a country will we live in? How great of a world will we live in? So... Different than a lot of the stories we talk about here, I think one of the biggest things, the biggest item here is that we as a country and as a world get the opportunity to continue to learn and interact with somebody of the caliber of Lance Corporal Kyle Carpenter. But to wrap up for his actions on 21 November 2010 in Marja, Afghanistan, jumping on a grenade or lunging towards a grenade to absorb the blast to save the life of a fellow Marine, Lance Corporal Kyle Carpenter would be awarded Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.